Father in heaven, would you be with us now as we look into this central drama, this historical event through which we are saved, Lord. By your spirit, would you open our eyes that we may see these mysteries unfolded for us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Be seated. Walking through the drama of this last week of Jesus' earthly life. We started on Palm Sunday as we marched around singing Hosanna and waving palm branches. We've been going through this week, and last night, Monday, Thursday, we remembered a number of things that happened, including the foot washing and the institution of the Lord's Supper. And the story from Matthew, um, Jesus has gone out from the city a little bit to the Mount of Olives, to this garden called Gethsemane. And there he has begun to experience this crushing pressure. And he has cried out to God, if there's any other way. But he realizes there is no other way. And so he submits to the will of his Father. Up to this point, things had been pretty quiet. The intimate meal in the upper room, the time they had in the garden, So quiet, in fact, the disciples had fallen asleep as Jesus was suffering and praying to his Father. But things were about to get very loud and chaotic. Judas comes with soldiers to arrest Jesus, and Jesus does not resist. He wrestled with the Lord's will, but he is now resolved to face the cross. And so he goes with them. He allows himself to be arrested. After this, two trials take place. One of them we heard read from Fred, but the other one, the first one, probably late Thursday night or very early Friday morning, is before the Sanhedrin, the ruling council of the Jews. They accuse Jesus of blasphemy, and they rule that he deserves death. It's interesting, the council is actually correct if Jesus is not who he says he is, He is blasphemous. He doesn't say much in that trial, but at one point, Matthew 27, verse 64, in response to a direct question about whether or not he is the Messiah, Jesus responds by alluding to Daniel 7, talking about the Son of Man. And if you know Daniel 7, uh, that is quite a scene where the Son of Man comes before the Ancient of Days and receives all this authority. The chief priest knew what he was saying. He tears his robe. He cries, blasphemy. If, as much the world sometimes says, Jesus is just a good religious teacher, um, then he really is not. He's a false teacher. He's a blasphemer. C.S. Lewis got it right. He is either a liar, or he's crazy, he's a lunatic, or as frightening as it seems, he is the Lord. He clearly thought himself to be the Messiah. You don't quote from Daniel 7. Lightly. Having declared him worthy of death, some begin to spit on Jesus, strike him, and mock him. His humiliation had begun. The next day, there was another trial, this time before Pilate, representing Roman authority. Pilate really is not inclined to have Jesus killed. His greater concern is crowd control, appeasing people, not having a riot happen, which would 
end up coming back on him. But he noticed that it was getting out of hand and there was a riot beginning. And so he finally gave in and he delivered Jesus up to be crucified. It's a way to appease the crowd. And we note the sad irony that just a few days earlier on Sunday, a crowd was crying Hosanna. Hosanna, praising him as the coming king. And here we have another crowd crying, crucify him, crucify him. Before he was crucified, Jesus was scourged. To be whipped in this way was um, an incredibly painful experience. The whip was made with embedded pieces of bone and metal. It would have totally shredded Jesus' back. The blood loss from that alone could have been fatal. It's very consistent in Matthew's account that he cannot carry his cross. They have to find someone to help him, Simon of Cyrene. He was in no condition to carry it. After he is whipped, he is brought to the governor's headquarters. And there a whole battalion was gathered before him. This is a detail that I I actually didn't remember because when I see this scene, and it's probably because of movies I've watched, I always just imagine a handful of soldiers that were mocking Jesus. But there could have been as many as 600 soldiers watching him, mocking him. It's a terrifying scene to be publicly exposed and humiliated in front of a cruel crowd of men. It really was a lynching of the worst kind. The soldiers we know put the crown of thorns on his head and then they struck him with a reed, driving those thorns deeper into his scalp. They continued the mockery. They placed a scarlet robe on him, mocked him by saying, Hail, King of the Jews, and they spit on him. He hasn't even been crucified yet. But what he endured in Thursday night in the garden, the emotional and psychological uh, torture, and now what he's going through in front of this huge crowd of people, it's appalling. And yet in all of this, Jesus doesn't defend himself. He fulfills the words of the prophet Isaiah. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that before its shears is silent, So he opened not his mouth. After his exposure to the cruelty of soldiers, Jesus is led through the streets of Jerusalem, outside the city where he is crucified. We are so accustomed to seeing crosses in our churches, around our necks, that we can sometimes forget how terrible a form of death it was. Physically, Yes, it was excruciating. Spikes driven into your wrist and legs, slowly dying of asphyxiation because the only way that you could let out a breath was to lift yourself back up, which was incredibly painful to do. But crucifixion was designed actually to be more than just physical. Fleming Rutledge writes that crucifixion was specifically designed to be the ultimate insult to personal dignity. The last word in humiliating and dehumanizing treatment. We often see or imagine Jesus with some sort of loincloth around him, but he was probably naked on the cross. The whole point of crucifixion was to degrade a person so that they're not even human anymore, that they're like an animal. And it was all done in public. 
So that one, people could ridicule you. And two, that it could serve as a warning. Don't mess with the power of Rome or you could end up like this person. As he hung there on the cross, he continued to receive all types of scorn and mockery. The cross was probably not situated on a lonely, isolated hill, as we romanticize it. It was probably on a thoroughfare, public street. Imagine someone being executed at the corner of Fairview and Sharon. Matthew tells us that as people passed by, they derided him, wagging their heads. They took some of his words and they threw them back at him, specifically about destroying the temple. They mocked him for claiming to be the Son of God. But one insult was particularly poignant to me. It's Matthew 27, verse 43. Someone says to him, He trusts in God. He's reflecting on Psalm 22, which we heard read. He trusts in God. Let God deliver him if he desires him. Changes the wording a little bit. If he desires him. I think the insult is God does not desire you. You're a bloody mess. You're less than human. You are cursed. Jesus hung like that in that state for at least three hours. The other gospel writers will record some of the things that he says from the cross. Some wonderful reflections uh, can be made from those. But we're sticking with Matthew this evening and this week. Matthew only records one thing that Jesus says. In verse 46. Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. It's Aramaic. Language that Jesus would have spoken. And it means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? You see, all the insults that were hurled at this man, Jesus, assume that he is a God-forsaken man. But it's surprising for us to hear Jesus actually say, like he's agreeing with their assumption that he is God-forsaken and he is cursed. But I think that's exactly what Jesus is experiencing The cry from the cross is a very disturbing word. It's very difficult to understand. I still remember a ninth grade English teacher. I think she was trying to challenge my faith or disprove me, but she she pointed this out, and I hadn't really been aware of it before, of, well, did you know Jesus said this from the cross? It seems to call into question God's character or Jesus's or both. Something feels very wrong about it. I wrestled with that for years, and finally... I wrote a paper on it and began to understand a little bit more about what might be happening there. Biblical scholars don't agree on what Jesus meant by this. It is well known that he is quoting Psalm 22. Psalm 22 begins with lament. The portion we read tonight was all lament. It actually ends uh, more triumphant. It ends with a note of victory. And some have suggested that Jesus is quoting the psalm and it's really just a way of saying, hey, I know it looks like I'm forsaken, but I'm actually victorious. But if he wanted to do that, why didn't he just quote that part of the psalm? I think we must seriously entertain the possibility that Jesus is experiencing a real type of forsakenness by his father. It doesn't mean the Trinity is divided. That's the great theological conundrum. But there's something profoundly awful happening to Jesus. And it has everything to do with the meaning of the crucifixion. At a human level, he was an innocent person suffering for crimes he didn't commit. Why would God forsake him for that? It's not his fault. He didn't do anything wrong. 
But as we saw last night, there's more to the story. We can look and and see one scene, but behind the scenes, in the spiritual realm of reality, something else is happening. And the Apostle Paul helps us understand it. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21, he says, For our sake God made Jesus to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Again, the writing, writer Fleming Rutledge describes it this way. God made Jesus to be sin even though he knew no sin. And in that indescribably terrible and unique transaction, Jesus apparently felt the full force of the utter separation from the Father. That is what he underwent in order to remake our human nature, not to improve it, not to accept it, not even to perfect it. But to re-engender it altogether, he became sin, we became the righteousness of God. That's what's happening on the cross. And that's why there's, I believe, a real type of forsakenness going on. When Jesus, the light of the world, who shone forth the glory of God, was being swallowed up in the darkness of sin and death for our sake. He was becoming sin, and it separated him from the Father. One final thought before I close. I want you to notice that there is no answer from heaven. In his most desperate and vulnerable moment, even worse than the agony of Gethsemane the night before, Jesus has cried out to his Father, and there's no answer. Once again, we face... The silence of God. That's a very human experience. All of us have in some way experienced the silence of God. Those desperate moments of crying out to God and we get no immediate answer. I find it interesting that God doesn't answer. Because we know from Matthew he's fully capable and he had beautiful, powerful moments. Baptism, heavens parted, voice of the Father. This is my beloved Son with whom I'm well pleased. The Spirit coming down. Again, transfiguration. Jesus shining forth His glory. The the voice coming from heaven saying essentially the same words. This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. Listen to Him. Those words are so powerful. If there was ever a moment, I would have thought Jesus needed to hear the Father's voice to be strengthened. That we would have needed to hear the Father's voice. It would have been then I would have thought... On the cross as he's crying out to God. But no voice. Not this time. No deliverance of angels. No sky parting moments. No Holy Spirit coming down like a dove. In this scene, we're left to wrestle with the silence of God. We know the rest of the story. We live on this side of the resurrection. But I would encourage us not to rush ahead too quickly. Good Friday is a good day to sit in silence. There is a lot of suffering in our world. There is a lot of suffering in our own lives. Small things perhaps, but big to us. And a lot of the time we're not getting immediate answer. Too often it does feel like the heavens are silent in the face of suffering, even when good people who know God cry out to Him. 
And so if you can bear it, I would encourage you to sit in this silence this evening and tomorrow and contemplate that man on the cross, that naked, bleeding, brutalized man crying out to a God who is not answering because a real forsakenness has taken place. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit.